Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. All right, I began to realize after last week that we probably can't cover like nine points every week, which is not a bad thing. So uh, if you didn't get the handout, Pastor was uh, helping hand that out. There are six tonight, but I thought we might go back briefly to just review a couple things we didn't totally get to last week and then move forward. So last week we talked about general reasons for persecution. So we talked about things like they were seen as being disloyal, as seditious, as problem makers, as uh, angering the gods, as all those types of things. And then we got into specific charges against the Christians. And if I ever use this again, actually I changed the PowerPoint after last week and made a separate subpoint just for those specific charges. But you remember what any of those specific charges were? Because they're kind of strange for us to hear Christians being accused of these things today. But do you remember what any of those were from last week? Sorry? Cannibalism. cannibalism, yeah. Christians were accused of cannibalism, not just in one piece of literature. Like Several pieces of literature accuse early Christians of committing cannibalism. So you're on the right track. Anyone else remember another one? Incest, right? So they're accused of incest. And then one more is kind of really odd. It's not so much an action, but a belief. Yeah, they're accused of atheism. Perfect. So those are the three specific accusations. Uh, then we came last week to some examples of early martyrologies. I think I briefly mentioned Polycarp. That's a later picture, trying to picture what it might have looked like. Um, to give you some briefly some examples of some other ones, around the year 178, there was what's called the uh, Martyrs of Lyon and Vienne. So not Vienna, that would be Austria, but Vienne is in France. So Lyon, you might have heard in France, it's a really famous, what's the word for high chef, gastro something, <laughs> gastro-culinary um, capital of the world type thing. And nearby, there's a small co- uh, town called Vienne. Um, in that small town, there still is actually the Roman amphitheater that is preserved. It's one of the best preserved Roman amphitheaters of the ancient world. It's smaller than some other major ones, but it's well-preserved. And we have an account about that and a couple of highlights of, I don't know if you talk about highlights of the martyrdom, but <clears throat> uh, one example would be that they actually put to death uh, the, the old, they call him bishop, but the old pastor. He's about 80 years old. His name is Pothinus. And obviously he was not really able to do any combat with the animals because as an elderly person that wasn't very um, very available. And then there, was, uh, there were women involved, like Blandina was one example of a faithful woman martyr from Lyon and Vienne. And in her case, they sent out a wild bull, and so the bull gouged her with the bull's horn, and that's the way that she suffered martyrdom. But they tried all kinds of things. The, the text talks about hot seats, like you get iron chair and you light it on fire and you put the uh, person on and tie, it to them, uh, tie them to it. They talked about quartering, so when you take people and you split them four ways by their arms and by their legs, uh, putting them on the wheel, kind of a similar thing, so you, you strap them on a wheel and then you have, uh, I always get centripetal and centrifugal force mixed up, but you pull on them outward and then you kind of quarter them in a sense that way. So those are examples of the martyrs of Lyon and Vienne. Um, and there's a lot of debate of how all that happens. It's a fascinating case study because actually the local governor wrote the emperor, and the emperor said to stop it, and they didn't. So it's not as easy as saying, like, it's emperor-down approach. Sometimes um, persecution was, like, grassroots 
moving upward. And what happened in Vienna was that first they began to destroy Christian property, so like houses and then businesses, and then they began to arrest the people. And if you, if you know the history of mob work and rioting, that's actually pretty common. Think Kristallnacht, for example. You first start destroying property, and then you start going after the people after you kind of get away with the property issues, and you have that too here at Lyon and Vienna. Um, another example is the martyrs of the skeleton martyrs of call. That's 180. It's the very first text that we have, a Christian text in Latin, and I actually brought up here on my laptop just to read it. It's, it's not a narrative, unlike these other ones. It's more of like the court document of like the blow-by-blow stenographer telling us what's happening here. So just to kind of jump here in the middle. Um, so the, the, the authority, political authority, says, give honor to Caesar as Caesar. And then they reply, we're going to honor Caesar Caesar, but we are going to fear God. And one of them says, I am a Christian. Um, and like in Latin, it would be sum Christianus, so I am a Christian. It's a famous statement in the persecution text. What I am that I wish to be. In other words, I don't want to change my mind. Then the proconsul asks him, do you persist in being a Christian? And he says, I am a Christian. He just repeats the statement. And then all the other Christians agree with him, we are Christians. And then he says, he, he asks him, do you have a space to consider? Like, we'll give you some time to reconsider. In a matter so straightforward, there is no considering, they say. And then they ask the Christians, what are those things in your chest? Meaning like a, like a box. And they replied, the books and epistles of Paul, a just man. So remember how we talked about last week, you don't normally have like your private copy of scripture, but furthermore, you don't have all the New Testament in one book, because it'd be really hard to bind it all together. So you kind of split up the four Gospels as one volume, Paul's epistles is another volume, and then if you have you know, general epistles or revelation, you have it in another location often. So they talk about having the epistles of Paul. There's another martyrdom text in which they kind of break in, it's a later one, tied to 300s, but they break into a church, uh, the oppressors do. And so they demand, like, the copy of the scriptures. And as you read the text, it seems like the, uh, the Christians are kind of playing a shell game of playing dumb, as it were. Like, I don't know uh, where the scriptures are. Um, I wasn't the reader this week. Go ask someone else. And so they ask someone else. I wasn't the reader this week. Go ask someone else. And so remember how you don't have your own personal copies of scripture usually. But the reader, the lector, would be the one who gives, by the word, the word lectionary comes from the lector, the reader, in liturgical circles. And so they, they finally try to find uh, the copies of uh, Paul's epistles and the copies of scripture. Meanwhile, they have found in the church um, shoes, <laughs> so all these shoes, and some silver dinnerware. <clears throat> so that's all they find that's of worth. And you're like, well, what's that about? Probably the shoes would be like charity for charitable purposes. It would be like a clothing cupboard, to use our kind of idea. And the dinner silverware might be either for like agape meals or perhaps even for the Lord's Supper. And that's really the only things of, uh, of value that they find inside the church. So some of them are pretty interesting. We'll give you just one more example here. Around the year 210, there is the Passion of Perpetua and Felicitas, um, and in this case, you have two women. It's named after two women, Perpetua, and then Felicity, to use our English version of that. But Perpetua was a well-bred woman, or a noble woman, I guess you would say. She was a high-class noble woman. She had a young child. Her dad was still a pagan. Uh, she was a Christian. And then her servant was Felicity, and Felicity would have been a lower level socioeconomically. But in Christ, they shared more in common in unity and faith in Christ than they would socioeconomic difference in society. 
And so they're in prison together, and they're trying to mutually encourage each other to stay true to the faith, etc. But Felicity is actually pregnant. So you have a nursing mom, and you have a pregnant mom, and they're trying to mutually exhort one another to stay true to the faith. At one point, the, the uh, political authorities even talked to Perpetua like, you're doing harm to your dad, your poor pagan dad. He, he wants you to recant the Christian faith, come back to paganism. You're like an embarrassment to your nobleman dad type scenario. So you kind of have those types of discussions too, um, how they're using what we might consider virtues, but especially in the Roman Empire, they would consider that a virtue, right? Respect of father. But they'd be using it against Christianity as the kind of newfound religion. And this was a struggle Christianity had. Um, it was considered a new religion, and the Roman Empire and the ancient world in general didn't tend to like newness. So they would like antiquity and ancient things. And so they actually called Christianity a superstitio, which you can guess what word we get from that. They call it a superstition. And they said it was a new superstition that just arose in our lifetime, you know, back in, in Israel. And so they would critique it that way. So one option the Christians had would be to delve deeply into the bridge between um, Jesus Christ and Jewish belief, right? So Jesus and Jewish belief and the Jewish scriptures, because that was a way of painting antiquity to Christianity that actually went back in the ancient world. And sometimes they probably over, over-argued their case. They claimed that like people like Plato and Socrates borrowed from Moses. So they're kind of like looking at culture, like whatever is really um, respected in culture, like philosophy. Well, let's kind of turn it on them and claim that they borrowed philosophy from Moses, which I don't know of any modern literary critic who would claim that that was directly the case. Well, that gives you a sense of that. And then the other subpoint last week would have been examples of apologists. I won't go through all of them that I have listed here, but give you some highlights here too. So when we hear the word apology, what do we think of? Like if I'm giving an apology, we think... Like you say, you're sorry, right? Like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. So it sounds like a Christian apology would be like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to become a Christian, or I didn't mean to be a Christian, uh, didn't mean for that to happen. That, that's not what's being said. The Greek word apologia means defense. It was used like in a courtroom of giving a defense. So we get our modern word apologetics from that. Um, and so you do have people like the one pictured here, Justin Martyr, who was a famous apologist. He had been trained as a philosopher. He was a follower of Plato, And then one day he's walking on the beach and he's considering life and the meaning of life and the purpose of life and what life is about. And some anonymous older gentleman starts walking with him on the beach. This is how Justin tells the story. And uh, starts sharing with him scripture. We might assume like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or John 3.16 or something, but it actually is the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. It's very similar to the account of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And so... Uh, This older individual is sharing the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, with Justin Martyr. And then Justin's like, I don't understand, you know, kind of like the Ethiopian eunuch. So then he he, uh, interprets it through the lens of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the Messiah they're looking forward to. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy and then, of course, gets into his death and resurrection. And so Justin Martyr um, uh, came to Christ and he would say he became a Christian through that. It's kind of interesting case study. He still would wear the philosophical toga. So he's like, I want to still be seen as a philosopher. I'm going to teach Christianity. And there's a constant tension in apologetics throughout church history that you are trying to win the world, but sometimes do you give away too much in trying to be acceptable before the world, right? 
So an example on this, people like Justin Martyr would end up claiming like the ancient Greek philosophers would probably be in heaven. They were probably saved, to use our terminology, um, even though they weren't, um, they weren't consciously trusting in Christ. But they would say, well, like the Old Testament led to Christ in the Jewish context. Greek philosophy led to Christ in the Greek context. They did the best that they could, and they believed what they could, and they came to the idea of like there's one deity at the top, and that may have been enough for them. But I think that would be a dangerous model, it seems to me. Uh, to take that view, because you're kind of downplaying the importance of mission and evangelism then. Because like, well, as long as they're monotheists, that's okay. Um, so it does, it does give an example of someone who dies for his faith. He's very, in that sense, uh, very uh, faithful, but also has some issues, I think, that we probably disagree with at times. Um, and so that's one example. And let's see if there's any others that I want to stress in the midst of all that. Uh, not really. So I think that's probably just that one example is probably sufficient to talk about that. If you want to look up one in Latin, Minucius Felix is a fascinating one. Um, by midnight tonight, I was supposed to hand in the final draft of a, a corrected copy of comparing the rhetoric of Minucius Felix and the Apostle Paul of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we'll see if that happens by midnight tonight. But um, what I find fascinating there is how a lot of early Christian writers of the second century are more um, rhetorically polished in their oratory than New Testament documents are. And I'm not sure if that's actually a great thing, actually. It's, it's kind of fascinating to think your way through that. I mean, Paul actually um, warns against the overtrust in rhetoric, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, right? And he says, it's foolishness to the world, and it's weakness to the world, but it's power because it's God's power, and it's God's strength because it's the gospel itself. And once again, apologists kind of want to win the culture, but in doing so, they kind of want to appeal to the culture. And is there something for us to learn about all that? Is it dangerous sometimes in our attempt to win the culture to kind of adopt the culture's value system? So um, let me try an example that may ring a bell, probably because you know Greek philosophy isn't something that we probably uh, think about much. So I was talking to a former student of mine, and he was um, in a kind of a suburban church context, and was talking to him that he um, was talking about starting a um, sports outreach ministry. And so I say, hey, you know, we've talked about that at Maranatha. We have a gym. We've talked about using our gym for you know good purposes of stewardship and starting some type of sports ministry. And I, and I mentioned in passing that you know be careful with how you do that. Like you don't want to. Um, appeal to false value systems or something like that, but it's a, it's a valid avenue of ministry. And so he turned to me and he's like, well, I don't see what the problem is. You have to understand that in my town, sports is like a god to people. He's actually exactly stating what I'm trying to get at, right? <laughs> like, do you take people's idols and do you elevate them or do you actually want to subvert their value system and say, under the gospel, even things that aren't necessarily inherently evil or bad could be disordered in your value system, and that the cross is going to subvert all that and uh, give us an entirely different value system. So those are just things to consider. So Logan, if we could... I I told Logan it's like Christmas tonight. We're going to go from red to green.
uh, tonight. So the next set here, which is on your handout, I, I apologize. I realize after copying that I haven't really been putting titles at the top of these, so they're kind of all mushed together. If you want, though, tonight's going to be about early Christian living, worship, and theology. If we get that far, we'll see how far we get here this evening. I thought it'd be interesting to start with a pretty simple discussion question. The early church is normally met in private homes. Explain several ways this fact alone would cause early church life to differ from your own local church's life. So, um, studies would say that most early Christian assemblies probably met in homes. I don't think it's across the board. In fact, there's a book that came out that was talking about how um, they met like in sometimes barns, restaurants, open fields, cemeteries, down by the riverside. I mean, they do all kinds of meeting places, but primarily homes. So how do you think that would change early church life? I'm not trying to say that you have to do it that way. I'm just being descriptive, like this is how they would do it. Um, Any thoughts about how that would change local church life? You're meeting in homes. Smaller groups. So studies would say that, you know, an upper middle class home in a Roman city might be able to fit 60 in the atrium area. Um, and so probably the assemblies weren't that big. Um, it, it may surprise people today that even the average assembly in America today is about one ten-ish. We, we sometimes only look at the really large churches, but we often forget how the average church throughout the nation is actually rather small compared to the megachurches, right? Um, so back then, if you're looking at 60 max, perhaps, to fit inside a home... That brings up questions, by the way, because like the uh, Church at Jerusalem had 3,000 members added in one day and all that. So what is the church at Jerusalem, and do they ever meet all together all at once? Or is really the church at Jerusalem, like let's say, um, do my math here, (laughs) uh, 50 different house churches. But back then there's no denominationalism. So it's not like, and there's the Bible church, and there's the community church, and there's the Baptist church. It's like it's the church in Jerusalem, right? So they would have strong sense of fellowship with one another. I do sense that James is at the top of it all, like they have a, like a head pastor, to use our wording. But it says they go to, from house to house breaking bread. Also, they still pray at the temple during that time period. But Yeah, so the size of it, that's very true. Any other differences from early church to church today based upon just the mere fact they're meeting in homes? <clears throat> It's a good question. Uh, there is quite a bit in the epistles about, you know, even pastoral requirements for the pastor, elder, bishop. Would every meeting have such a person? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I do think that there, there's pretty uh, the strong clarity they have pastor, elder, bishop. They have church leaders. Um, in fact, if you look at both 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5, it even stresses going back to Jesus how they are to be trying to move them toward remuneration. Since they both quote from Deuteronomy, like the, the, let the oxen eat the grain when it's working, right? So that they all use that as an example of uh, letting the preaching, teaching um, staff to you know, live off of the remuneration. Although Apostle Paul says, I could have done that, but I have voluntarily foregone that, like Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So they do have that sense. But let me turn that a little bit different way. I... I tend to think that how we think of preaching today 
what is more of a developed speech-like scenario that probably ancient preaching was much more informal. You're, you're in a small group in a home, it's more like sharing and proclaiming rather than like developing an oratorical masterpiece. <laughs> and I say this you know, as someone who has taken homiletics and has taught homiletics before, um, so I'm not at all downplaying the importance of learning how to do homiletics. But frankly, if you were to you know, take the notes that I was taught on how to do homiletics and then match up the sermons from Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, they don't, they don't do that, right? They don't have points like my first point, my second point, my third point. Um, they don't have like exposition, illustration, application. It's actually not that clear um, in how that would function. So there seems to be more of informality to it. To the point that probably uh, you could ask questions. So um, during the service, the pastor is preaching, teaching, and, hey, I didn't understand that. Could you go back? It would be more like a Sunday school. Like even right now, if you were to raise your hand, it would make sense to be like, hey, let's hear your question. It wouldn't probably make as much sense in like some church settings with large audiences and like waving, waving your hand like, I have a question back, two points back. It probably wouldn't make as much sense today in some of those contexts, but... So that's something to consider. There are quite a few other things here. Like, probably all the ages were all together. You wouldn't have, like, the nursery room and the elementary school classroom and the high school classroom. So all the families would be all together um, in the teaching fashions there. And what's not just being descriptive, I'm not saying that's the way things have to be done or should be done. Anything else you can think of? Yes? Yeah, in fact, regularly... Uh, so a couple facets about that. They probably had communion every Sunday. But tied to communion, they probably, many of them had what they call an agape meal leading to communion or after communion, like a full potluck dinner is what we would call it. So they would do that regularly, and it was right there in the home. It's kind of like a family dinner. So maybe in some of your small group Sunday nights, they actually have some food or something like that. It would be very similar to that. Um, and, and the whole concept, actually, of seeing church as more of a family than a speaker with an audience uh, they'd be a little bit more tending that way of like a familial group of people who have fellowship together, love one another, mutually exhort one another. So you have those facets as well. Hmm. Anything else you can think of? So the stress would be on, on the congregation, right? In fact, the very first time that we know of, archaeologically of a church building, is from the year 250. And we have... Uh, we can look it up on the web if you wish. Adira Europus, it's called. It's a church building. Well, let me qualify that. It's the first building we know that was specifically purposed to be a church building. Even in that case, it probably was a home and then repurposed. Um, but prior to that, it would seem like um, they were simply homes. And then you just simply have the uh, Christians meet there together. There has been some archaeologists who believe that in Jordan, just across the river from Israel, also around the year 250, you have some homes or some buildings that are meant to be churches and um but that's the same time period that's two 250 that's what 120 years after the death of christ so anything else you want to add to that maybe you ask more questions we get to some of the worship issues of the early church so let's just kind of continue at this point um the apostolic fathers <clears throat> so this is a phrase that according to tradition some of them actually knew the apostles did we talk about this concept last week? I don't think we did. Did we? Okay. Uh, I'll briefly do it. So there's a, 
there's a uh, corpus now called the Apostolic Fathers. It's rather set, but the first time it's set is about the year 1770. Um, and since then, they keep on adding a few more, and they keep on publishing it. And you can, you can buy copies of the Apostolic Fathers on Amazon. Um, probably the vast majority come from the second century. Some of them may actually come from the late first century. If I were to say, like, here are three or four that you would uh, be spending your time wisely to read, um, one would be First Clement. So First Clement is a letter written from Rome to Corinth around the year 95-96. To put this into kind of context here, about 40 years after Paul wrote to Corinth, Clement writes to Corinth. So to put that differently, some of you remember 1984, um, I graduated from junior high in 1984. From that period to 2024, 40 years, that's the same amount of time. And we have a letter written by someone to the very same congregation that Paul wrote a letter to 40 years prior to that. And it's extant, meaning we have it. And he talks about how they're fighting. And actually he talks about how the young people have revolted against the elders of the church. So he's like, some things never change, right? Um, it doesn't tell us what they're fighting about, but the young people have, in his mind, have revolted against the leadership of the church. And then he goes on to actually tell them, read Paul's epistle to you. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what we would call that. They don't have chapters back then. But love bears all things, love is kind, love is patient, etc. And then he goes on to say, at least back then you were fighting over apostles. So when Paul wrote you, you were fighting about Peter and Apollos, and Paul, and now you're just fighting over your local church leadership. He's like, you've gotten even worse. Now you're not even fighting over apostles. You're just fighting over you know, the pastoral staff uh, type scenario. And so he's kind of uh, arguing against that. And so then the theme becomes harmony and repentance, so a strong sense of calling them to repent and to be unified. It's a fascinating text. Um, Another one would be Ignatius of Antioch. This is different than Ignatius of Loyola. That one comes much later in church history um, and is a Catholic um, priest and leader of an order. Ignatius of Antioch is obviously from Antioch in Syria. He's around the year 120-ish. He's coming as a martyr. He's under arrest. He's coming from Antioch in Syria eastward across modern-day Turkey. He's going to go over to modern-day Philippi, then be taken all the way to Rome, and then he's going to suffer martyrdom. Yeah. Quick yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great question. I wrote down this because I, if I remember, I like to bring a crosscut of a Greco-Roman house next time to kind of show you what it looks like. If if Corinth is only one house, which it's hard to know with absolute certainty, um, First and Second Corinthians actually list about sixteen male figures in the church. So, doing the math, we may know the name of every householder leader inside the whole church. Because you do the math 16 times 4, whatever, you end up with around 60 or so and so on. If it's actually a cluster, it would be a little bit different. Um, although at one point in Paul's epistles, he talks about when you all meet together, have this letter read to you. So is that kind of implying that? Like, 
Um, you pass it from house to house, or you all get together some large venue or outside, and you have it read to you. Um, however that looked, that is a reminder that early Christian epistles were read aloud to the congregation when it arrived. So if you can imagine, like being Yodia and Syntyche, and the pastor at Philippi is reading through the book of Philippians, and you don't know what's coming, because we know what's coming in chapter 4. He's like, I beseech you, Yodia, and I beseech you, Syntyche, be of the same mind of the Lord in front of everybody. Like, it's, a, it's a public event, right? And you're reading people's names, and you're exhorting them publicly in the midst of all that. So uh, that is a reminder of that. So, so, yeah, I guess, Jim, to kind of go back to your question, in some cases like Jerusalem, it's completely clear it is a cluster, in other cases, whether it's Ephesus or Corinth, it's hard to know. Rome is also clearly a cluster, um, which is one of the reasons even like more scholarly type Roman Catholics today do not claim there is one head of the church in Rome, first century, second century, because it seems to be little house churches and sometimes even divided by ethnicity. So a more Jewish house church, a more Gentile house church. That's part of the problem of the Book of Romans that Patrick will be getting into is how you know, that, that all fits together. So we know in that case it is a cluster as well. You get into the other ones, it's, it's not very clear. I was at a conference last fall, and there's being work done, like in Ephesus now, of using archaeology to figure out how quickly Christianity went into what we would call the suburbs of Ephesus. So we know that it makes it to Colossae, even though the book of Acts doesn't mention Colossae, because we have Paul's epistle to Colossae. But there are also little beady towns uh, five miles outside of Ephesus that don't appear in the New Testament text at all, but there is evidence that Christianity appears there by the late second century. So it seems like you plant in the urban centers and then you work your way outward, like a mission strategist would probably do today. You go to Brazil, you go to Sao Paulo, you go to Rio de Janeiro, you kind of branch outward from the urban centers. So we know that's happening. Um, Ignatius of Antioch writes seven letters according to at least the modern reconstruction of what's genuine. And among those letters are, is a letter to Ephesus, a letter to um, Smyrna, a letter to Rome. So he's actually, once again, writing letters to churches that we have letters to in the New Testament. Um, and then Polycarp is someone who actually meets Ignatius directly, personally. He's from Smyrna, and as Ignatius is coming through town, as he says, being led by ten leopards, like ten guardian soldiers, they stop in Smyrna, Polycarp talks to them, and then Ignatius keeps on going on his way, he goes over to Philippi, and then Philippi writes back to Polycarp, is like, hey, we, we really enjoyed meeting with that Ignatius guy, he's a really fascinating guy, uh, do you have anything you can share with us about him? So then Polycarp forwards letters to them. It does remind you that we believe in the autonomy of the local churches, but there is interdependence of connectionalism too that they are willing to help each other out it's not like we're so independent we don't help out any other churches so for example the new testament itself talks about uh to ephesus share the letter i wrote to laodicea share that with uh, you and and back and forth it talks about accept um the representative of a church when they come through town house them so romans chapter 16 says when phoebe comes through town I am um, praising her and give her hospitality. So you have some of that interdependence. A side note to that, ancient hotels are not things that you, if you had your druthers, you wouldn't choose to stay in an ancient hotel. Uh, Part of it is for moral reasons. They're kind of a mixture of places of ill repute and places to stay the night. Part of it is just getting ripped off. (laughs) Uh, Part of it is some danger issues. So if you could find Christians in town who would house you, um, that would be helpful. That reminds me of another one. I'm not sure if I would say this is 
as, you know, across the board, orthodox as it were, but it's very early. Some people think it's as early as 70, but the Didache is a really early apostolic father text. But what brought that to mind is Didache directly says, if you have a traveling preacher coming through town, house them for three nights. If they demand more than that, they're probably a false prophet. <laughs> so once again, I'm not saying that's, you know, prescriptive for us. It's just interesting how they're dealing with problems back then of like, you know, the mooching traveling itinerant speaker who just wants to stay and hang out and you pay for them type scenario. And we often forget how that things in church life continue throughout church life. It talks about fasting two days a week, uh, the two different days in the Jews fast. It talks about how to baptize and how to do Lord's Supper. It's, It's a fascinating one. Maybe to put one other one that I think is more helpful, it would be the Epistle to Diognetus. And this is what's called an apology. Remember that word already? A defense of the Christian faith. Um, but it has some beautiful passages. You do struggle with how it is highly rhetorical, unlike the simple Greek of the New Testament. It's highly polished. And is that good? Is that bad? What's going on there? Um, let me just open up here and read chapter 5 for you of this one, if you give me just a moment to do a word search here. All right, so we don't know who it's written from. We know it's written to. It's written to the addressee of Diognetus. But chapter 5 is some of the most beautiful language in early Christian literature. And it says uh, the following. It's contrasting Christians with all their pagan neighbors. Um, They dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. They bear their share in all things as citizens, and they endure all hardship as strangers. Every country is a fatherland to them, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like all other humans, and they beget children, but they do not cast away their offspring. They don't practice infanticide. They have their meals in common, but not their wives. They find themselves in the flesh, and yet they live not after the flesh. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and they surpass the law in their own lives. They love all men, and they are persecuted by all men. They are ignored, and yet they are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are endured with life. They are in beggary, they're in poverty, and yet they make many rich. They are in want of all things, and yet they abound in all things. They are dishonored, and yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are evil spoken of, and yet they are vindicated. They are reviled, and they bless. They are insulted, and they respect. Doing good, they are punished as evildoers. Being punished, they rejoice as if they were thereby quickened by life. War is waged against them as aliens by the Jews, and persecution is carried on them against them by the Gentiles. And yet those that hate them cannot tell the reason of their hostility." In a word, what the soul is in a body, this the Christians are in the world. It's a very fascinating text. It's a lot of rhetoric of contrast, right? So they do this, they don't do this, they do this, they don't do this. So some beautiful language there. Well, let's move on. Uh, Past the Apostolic Fathers, we come to some early heresies. So what's a heresy? So when you think of the word heresy, what what do you think of? Like bad stuff, right? Like bad teaching, false teaching. At its root, it simply means it comes from the Greek word to choose, and then like to distinguish yourself by your choice. So actually, if you read the book of Acts, the Jews call or the Christianity, what they would call the Nazarenes or the way, they call it a heresy. Because from their perspective, uh, the early Christians are choosing to follow Jesus as the Messiah. And so from the Judaism perspective, it's actually heretical, right? Because they're splitting off of Judaism. In early Christianity, you have uh, some different types of heresies, so I'll quickly buzz through some of these here. Um, In the book of Galatians, you have, without using the term, but you have the concept, 
So looking back at them, we give them the name Judaizers, but that's not found in the text itself. That would be found later. So what's a Judaizer? It seems to be someone who's telling Christians they have to obey the Old Testament law. So it begins with circumcision, which is the whole debate at the Jerusalem Council. Like, what does it take to be a Christian? Well, step one in Judaizer perspective is if you're a Gentile, you're not circumcised, you've got to get circumcised. And then you bring yourself under the law, and you have to keep the law in its entirety. So that would be the Judaizers. Uh, Paul fought strongly against the Judaizers, and he would uh, consider them to be legalists in the full sense of the term, theologically. So legalism is any time that we try to keep rules or standards and so on to earn or keep acceptance before God. It can be talking about salvation like it's beginning, uh, like you're justified by faith or you justify by doing good stuff, right? So this would be legalism. It can also, though, be like people who think that they're initially saved by faith, but they either get God to love them even more by doing good stuff or um, they got to keep doing good stuff to keep in the family, as it were. So you could also consider that to be a level of uh, legalism. We often throw on the term as anyone who's stricter than we are. That's a legalist. It becomes a very relative term. Like, when's the last time you heard a pastor say, I am the imbalanced pastor, welcome to my ministry, right? Every pastor I've ever heard says, I'm the balanced one. In fact, you know, in the history of where I've been uh, working and ministering in different locations, and there's someone that comes to mind who would often talk about, we're in the center of the right-hand side of the road, we don't go off either cliff type scenario. Um, everyone thinks of themselves as balanced, but in the end, that's kind of relativistic based upon comparison with other people, right? And so who really is balanced? Um, so you probably want to define legalism in a more objective sense, and it seems to be those who um, actually think that by doing something or keeping the law in particular, uh, they are becoming more right with God. Now, some of them in the early church went further than that. Some of them didn't believe Jesus Christ was divine. Some of them believed the Apostle Paul was an apostate. So we actually know about groups who consider themselves Christian, second century, who thought Paul was a bad guy, because in their view, Paul was opening up the doors to Gentiles without having to keep the Jewish law. So let's just do maybe three other ones here. What about Gnosticism? So this would be another early heresy. And Gnosticism um, is tied to the word um, knowledge. And they thought they had a secret knowledge. They thought that they knew stuff that the average Joe and Jane did not know. And in their view, what it was is that there was this godlike figure who's so ineffable, meaning we can't understand at all, but that just kind of flowing from this God figure are lesser divine beings, and finally one of them, it's kind of like when you have a photocopy machine, you keep on photocopying, and it's not quite as clear as the previous one. So you take that one, you make a photocopy, and pretty soon that's not very clear. Take that one. You know what I'm saying? Like pretty soon the 10th iteration of your photocopy is hard to read or something, right? Which with modern photocopiers is not very true. But back in the day it was true. So that's kind of what's happening here. These divine beings are flowing from the ineffable God, but they keep on getting a little bit, less good, and a little bit less smart. And pretty soon, one of them had the idea of, let's create the material world. And so he's the demiurge figure. He creates the material world, and the material world is inherently bad in this view. So let's kind of draw a little material person here. So here's uh, material world Joe here, and he's made out of a physical body. Inherently bad. He's kind of distorted, but... Um, inherently bad because it's physical. But what happens is that the good God, the God we don't fully understand, he actually puts into 
the body a divine spark, and that's the knowledge, the secret knowledge you're supposed to have. So in this view, salvation isn't about like a sacrificial death in your place. It's not about redemption um, and substitution. It's about knowledge. And the way that you get salvation is by knowing the secret truth, which is that we have a divine spark within us. And throughout worldviews, that still occurs today, right? You have to kind of decide today, what's the most basic human problem? Is it sin? No, ding, 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 biblical worldview. Or is it ignorance? And a lot of secular worldviews, that is the core human problem. Like throw more money at the education system, everything will be solved. Or in some Eastern religions, you know, you learn more. And then that's solved. There's not a sense of like sacrifice, substitution, redemption. Well, in the, in the biblical worldview, that's quite different. And so in this view, the body is bad, and it leads to really two bizarrely different forms of living. So one form of them would be like, okay, um, the body's bad, so suppress it. So a very strong ascetic view of the body, like don't do anything that you might find pleasurable. So they would actually end up eating um, only water and drinking, I say eating water, uh, drinking only water and then have like a vegetable diet. And part of the problem, it's, I'm not trying to get into like vegan, vegetarian issues. I'm just trying to explain the worldview. Part of the problem in their view is if you eat an animal, it has a body and the body's bad, you're imbibing badness into your body and continuing the cycle, right? But they're also be opposed to having sexual relations and procreation, because you're imprisoning the next generation of humans in bad bodies. So you don't want to do that. You want to free them from the body. So that's the secret knowledge that you have. That's one form. But the other form is actually complete opposite. It's like, do whatever you want. And it doesn't matter because that's just your body doing it. That's not really you. The real you is the divine spark inside of you. You can do whatever you want and claim that you never sin because um, that's just your body doing it. So at least a very polarized opposite views of how you live, um, you live your life. Well, tied into this would be a sub-heresy uh, called docetism, and that comes from the word to appear. They would say that Jesus only appeared to have a human body. So why is that? Well, because Jesus is a good guy. He's like the revealer in the Gnostic system. But if he's a good uh, divine being, he's not going to have a body because the body is bad. So he's not going to become embodied as a human. He's not going to become incarnate. And are there any New Testament books that already oppose, uh, without using the word heresy, that already oppose the false teaching that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh? First John, right, and Second John, they both oppose the view that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. And here actually might be an example where knowing this stuff can help out interpret New Testament stuff because some of these, like Polycarp um, in chapter 6 of his epistle, opposes the very same heresy. And he says, if you don't believe Jesus Christ came in the flesh, you have the spirit of the Antichrist, you're of the devil, and this is 120. And 1 John is about the year 95. That's only 25 years prior to Polycarp writing. It can actually kind of help you to put together some of the puzzle pieces of how you can use early Christian documents to help interpret the New Testament. Well, uh, let's try two more. So Marcionism. It's named after a guy named Marcion. So if you end it after the N. And he 
came from a church up in northern Turkey, but he began to take stranger and stranger views. The core of his view is that the Old Testament and the New Testament come from different deities. So the Old Testament God is actually not a good God. He's willing to call him a just God, like a God of justice, but he's a God of condemnation and a God of con- uh, punishment. Um, and he's actually, in a way, leaning toward being an evil God. But the Father of Jesus Christ is all of God of love and mercy and grace. And before we write this off as like an ancient heresy, um, I do think there are people today who tend to view the Old Testament through the lens of condemnation and punishment, and Jesus would never condemn anyone and never punish anyone, right? And so he's just kind of like a, a fluffy, loving human being that we can just you know appreciate. And so God the Father is kind of like that. While statistically, actually, Jesus talks far more about eternal punishment, actually, than anyone inside the Bible, actually. And that's eternal punishment, not just temporary punishment. Um, So it completely flipped the Old Testament on its head, though, because the Old Testament God is bad, so then the serpent's doing something good by tempting Adam and Eve, and the the tree of knowledge of good and evil is actually a good thing, and they partake of it, and it gets really kind of completely topsy-turvy in how this works. But Marcion believed that the only Bible we should have is some of Paul's epistles and the Gospel of Luke, and even those he kind of edited. You do wonder, looking at modern church life, if sometimes we are implicitly Marcionite at times. Um, I appreciate, like, pastor preaches the book of Psalms the last couple summers. And there are some ministries, though, you'll never hear the Old Testament. It's only about the New Testament. And frankly, it's only about like topical lists of like five things God wants you to do using proof texts, jumping from verse to verse all over the New Testament. But you never really study the Old Testament. Um, and sometimes it's hard. I mean, the Old Testament has some pretty difficult stuff, um, including primarily in today's culture issues about the Canaanites and so on. Uh, but to simply jettison that, I think, is problematic. And you know, if you've kind of know what's going on in recent kind of Christian blogosphere type stuff the last couple of years. There's some pretty famous pastors in America that have said some things that really downplay the Old Testament. And like, yeah, you don't really need the Old Testament. I would remind you that for the first decades of early Christianity, that was their scripture. They didn't have the New Testament. That was their scripture. They're reading it through a messianic lens, but that is their scripture. Um, all right, one more, and that's modalism. And modalism would say that there's only one person in the Godhead. So the Father is the Son, is the Spirit. So the way that we would land as we get things more clear is there are three members or three persons in one Godhead or one divine essence. What they're saying is that there's only one person in the divine Godhead or one member. So the Father is the Son, the Son is the Spirit. So if you kind of think of it like this, like this is a, a stage and here's a, a curtain. So you come out behind the curtain like, I'm the father. And you step back out and they're like, I'm the son. And you, you, know, you do the same like, I'm the Holy Spirit, but it's the same person. It's kind of like, you've never seen the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ in the same room at the same time. Hmm, you know, type thing. So it's called modalism because they believe that he takes different modes. This too, you may think, well, who cares? But... United Pentecostal Church, the UPC Church, is a Jesus-only church. 
And so they would say to be truly saved, you've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus. But Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Spirit. If you drive from like Ankeny up to Ames, you'll come across New Life Church. It used to be called New Life United Pentecostal Church. Now it's just New Life Church. I would imagine lots of people don't know what they're getting into when they go to New Life Church because it's not very clear in its labeling, right? It's just like New Life Church. Uh, but it is a, a modalistic uh, Pentecostal church. So some early writers have to oppose that. If you're going to oppose that, what would be a great text to Scripture to say, no, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit really are distinct. Jesus' baptism, perfect. That's what Tertullian does. He's a major early theologian. And he's kind of a sarcastic kind of a theologian guy. So he's kind of using sarcasm against his opponents. But he's like, okay, come on, modalists, let's think our way through this. Jesus is in the water, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. So is Jesus like an amazing ventriloquist? Like, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So he's kind of using sarcasm. And then the spirit comes on Jesus like a dove, right? So how, how does that happen? Like the spirit lands on Jesus, but they're the same being. He would also look at texts that say that like, Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father. It's like, how does that work? Like if they're the same being, you sit in the right hand of yourself. So how does that work? But it's the importance of Trinitarian doctrine. We'll get to that maybe more. The longer this uh, series is going, the more I realize I'm trying to bite off too much every night, I think. Uh, but I'll give you a fun story about this. Well, let me back up. In social knowledge theory, we tend to know best what we argue about and then have to defend. So a lot of times in our circles, like if you go to the faith dorm, there'll be lots of debates about, say, pre-tribulationalism and Calvinism and this type of stuff. Very little about the Trinity. The danger is we assume everyone knows how to explain the Trinity. But tons of people in our churches don't know how to do it well. Uh, I still receive like papers every year that the three parts of the Trinity are, which is actually really bad language. You can't partify the Trinity. You can't cut it up and have different parts of the Trinity. Um, but we simply assume that people know how to explain it. So like I was teaching Maranatha Youth Group, well, it was about 20 years ago one night, and we were talking about the Trinity. I asked people to define it. The only one who gave an orthodox definition of the Trinity was a visiting Catholic young girl. Because they talk about the Trinity far more than we do. And we simply assume that the doctrines we hold in common with Orthodox and Catholics, we all believe in the concept of a Trinity. We simply assume we know what it means, how to explain it, but often, in fact, we don't because that's not something we're arguing about. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's something to consider uh, that we simply assume that people know some of the really core basics at times, and they really don't know it very well at times. All right, three minutes. Let's see what comes up next. <laughs> um, so the response to earlier, that's a good place to end here. Response to early heresies. Pretty easy to consider. You have the three Cs. So you have, um, you have creeds, you have clergy, and you have the canon. So let's write those down, then we'll briefly discuss them. So you have creeds, you have the clergy, and you have the canon. These are three ways of fighting heresy in the early church. We're talking you know, late 1st century, 2nd century, up into the 3rd century, and then before Constantine. 
So creeds, um, some of the earliest examples, you may have, depending on your background, some of you may have memorized the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, but it's a statement of we believe. They're pretty short. You look at the Maranatha Doctrinal Statement, you look at an early creed, and they're structured by the Trinity. So I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, who for our sake and for our salvation uh, became a human and died on the cross for our sins, etc., um, and so those are the early creeds. When, when they say in those statements, I believe in God the Father, or I believe in Jesus Christ, or I believe in the Holy Spirit, it's a little bit different than when, like we have, I believe in pastor, elder, bishop are the same office, or I believe that the tribulation happens before the millennium. We're using the word belief in the sense of content, like that's a fact, and I believe it. They mean like that's the object of my trust. So it's, you look, notice how it's, it's structured. It's about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're actually the objects of your trust, not just the objects of your acquiescence to the factuality of it. That's what they mean early on by that. They would early use them in baptismal scenarios, and then they began to write them down. Um, but they're not like necessarily a set word either, a set wording. A little bit malleability to all that. We could get back to that if you wish. Clergy is the other thing. And here, um, one thing you'll learn about in church history is people can have really good motivations but have bad results. Okay? So this guy here, Nation of Antioch, he's the first known writer that we have that separates out the bishop from the elders. So he has a threefold office. He has the bishop over the entire town, entire city, elders plural, and deacons plural. So now you have three offices. His motivation is really good because he's fighting heresies. And he's like, submit to the bishop. Obey the bishop. If you obey the bishop, you'll be okay. Because the bishop is there to lead you and to guide you. But over time, you end up with a rather authoritarian view of the bishops. And what it doesn't solve is the problem of the bad bishop. Meaning, what happens if the bishop goes bad in his theology, but I've been commanded to obey the bishop? and to submit to the bishop, right? So you can kind of see there's some things developing here that may be problematic over time. Uh, But it's developing what we call a hierarchical system of authority in the early church. And then the canon. So this is um, recognizing the scriptures and beginning to put them together in one location, making lists of the scriptures that you are to be considering, etc. So it's so hard for us because we're so used to picking up a copy of the scriptures, right? And so we have a copy of the scriptures, and we use it for devotions, and we flip from, like, this page to this page, and we're kind of using our nice leather-bound copy of the scriptures. Um, but once again, that takes a lot of time to get to this point. So early on, let's just think of the, book of F- uh, the city of Ephesus, for example. They don't have the New Testament like a book. What books, plural, of the New Testament would they have in Ephesus, do you think? So book of Ephesians, right, because Ephesians. Also Revelation, it's one of the seven churches. Probably First and Second Timothy and Titus, at least two of those, because it's related to the church in Ephesus. Um, and so early on they have that, and pretty soon churches start sharing with other churches, like, um, it's what I have, what do you have? It's kind of like playing a game of pit or something, like two, 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 one, 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 one. And you start sharing, and you start amassing, and you begin to put it together in one location. We're so 
used to just like this drop down and we have it. We forget the historical process it takes to put it together. Now, I want to be clear in a um, reformational perspective, it's not that the church makes it scripture. It's that the church recognizes it as scripture. I mean, it already is scripture at the point of writing. All scripture is given by inspiration, so it's already scripture because it's divinely empowered and authorized. The church recognizes it, but doesn't make it scripture, while like the Roman Catholic perspective would be that the church makes it scripture, and so they have the authority of the church, the authority of tradition, and tied together with that, and so that is kind of a difficulty um, that will erupt during the Reformation, because Martin Luther's like, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and the Catholics are like, but how do you know you have the right scriptures? Because you're dependent upon councils who gave you the list of scriptures that you're now trying to use against the Catholics. And I think there's answers to that. I think you've got to go for, ultimately, it's the authority of God himself through his spirit inspiring the text, providentially overseeing the acceptance of the text, and Jesus Christ's authority as a risen Lord to choose the apostles, uh, personally handpicked them to lead them into the early church. It says that they are the foundation of the church. But ultimately, all that authority is derivative from Jesus and the Godhead. It's not human-centered authority. All the humans involved are derivative uh, from God's own authority. So it's kind of like self-authorizing, uh, scripture itself would be. But we'll save that discussion for another time because we're out of time. So um, before I let you go, any questions that you want to address the next couple of weeks? I mentioned house church. Anything else you want me to put up here for future weeks? Like, hey, I have a question about that. And how did that work in the early church after Acts? Any questions anyone has? Okay. We'll let you go. I could go up and break into your prayer time. So fulfill Acts 2.42, coming together for teaching and for fellowship and prayer as it says in Acts 2.42, and we'll go ahead and have some prayer time. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.